welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. We believe all survivors should have access to justice and resources to help them heal from the trauma of sexual abuse. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. Join us as we talk with survivors and various community members who are taking action to normalize the conversation around sexual abuse in the pursuit of justice and healing. This is Support for Survivors. Hello everyone, this is your host, Shauna C. Terrell. Welcome to Support for Survivors. Today we are honored to welcome Arifa Mosabi to our show. Arifa is a survivor of sexual assault and she's here to share her journey with us. Welcome Arifa, we are so happy to have you today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Just a little bit about myself. I am a human rights advocate. I do spend my spare time keeping up with human rights related issues and I've greatly enjoyed providing advocacy and support for survivors of domestic and sexual violence. I myself am a rape survivor. Okay. Um, so thank you for letting us know that. And I suppose um, it should come as no surprise that you're a human rights advocate F you know, what you've been through. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about that, um, what your journey has been like, and we'll go from there. Sure. So I was targeted on the basis of my gender and religion by a former coworker um, who was fixated on my hijab uh, and wanted to see me without it on. Um, he made multiple unwelcome comments about my hijab that were of a sexual nature. But after claiming he was only joking about the unwanted comments, he insisted that I could trust him uh, and that, you know, I didn't have anything to worry about. But so after mm-hmm. I'm going to start, you, I'm sorry, I'm going to stop you just real quick. So you are Muslim, is that correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. And you do wear a hijab every day? Yes. yes. Okay. Sorry, I just wanted to point that out. So please continue. So, uh, you know, after getting my trust, He lured me into a dark, secluded area on the campus farm at Mount San Antonio College and raped me on December 12, 2013. Um, Both before and after he raped me, he continued to demand that I take off my hijab um, for his sexual gratification. And he repeatedly fetishized my right to wear hijab and continued to do so after I told him to stop. Um, And his behavior was specifically directed at me. So, first of all... Arifa, I'm so sorry you've been through that. What a awful, horrible experience. And I just, it's, it's so hard going through what you've been through is already hard enough, but you've got that extra harm there because you were targeted specifically for that reason. How old were you when that happened? Uh, So it happened in 2013. uh, Around age 20-ish. Yes, 19. I hadn't yet, I've, I hadn't yet turned, I don't think I turned 20 yet. Was I 20? Yeah, probably around 20. Sorry. <laughs> so you were in college yes. and so you met this person like working through the college somewhere, like a work study program, something like that, or? I guess I was working at the, it's called the T-Mark. Um, that's where people receive math tutoring. I mean, I was assigned to work at the front desk circulating materials and checking things in and out for students and he was also an employee there how long had you known him before he sexually assaulted you a couple of months so he took a couple months to kind of befriend you and make you think that you could be safe with him before he did it yes 
And what race was he? Um, he happened to be, uh, I don't know if African-American is the correct designation because he is Ghanaian. So I, I you know, don't know if that's what he identifies as, but I would say African. Um, so obviously it's clear now that he targeted you at least somewhat because of your religion. Was it clear at that time to you? Like, could you tell that this is why this was going on based on the things that he was saying? Um, in the aftermath of him raping me, yes. Um, and each time that he made sexually unwelcome comments regarding my hijab and, you know, there were text messages of him saying, you know, I want to, you know, I want you to take your headscarf off so I can, you know, see your hair and touch it and feel it. And it was just, it was extremely uncomfortable, you know, and I let him know that it was uncomfortable and I asked him to stop uh, in writing as well as in person. So, yeah, I I figured it was uncomfortable, but, you know, he insisted after I confronted him because that he, you know, claimed that he was only joking. I gave him the benefit of the doubt. And after he assaulted you, what happened? Was he prosecuted? Did anyone find out? Was he fired? Yes. Yeah, so I, um, rep- he wasn't prosecuted, but I did report him to my college, which was Mount San Antonio College. Um, and unfortunately, they chose not to investigate fairly. The reporting process at the college was dehumanizing and discriminatory. Um, the Title IX coordinator demanded that I reenact the rape on her note taker, despite knowing that I was traumatized. Yeah. And she claimed that my credibility would be questioned if I didn't comply with it. Um, and because they claimed that I hesitated while I was in a traumatized state of mind, they didn't, in their review letter, they didn't, um, they didn't mention that I was traumatized, but in depositions under oath, the Title IX coordinator uh, indicated that she knew I was traumatized because I was just crying. I couldn't even, I could barely communicate my words. And in that moment, I was struggling. And then for them to just, sorry. No, don't apologize. And please take your time. And if you need a moment, take a moment, please. For them to turn around and use my traumatized state of mind to suggest that I lack credibility. It was awful. It was awful. But, you know, it didn't end there. Um, they failed to interview. They It wasn't even a failure. She flat out wouldn't interview my witnesses, including my sister, who was targeted by him, too. Or he made sexually harassing and discriminatory comments because of her hijab. She wore a floral pattern hijab one day at work and he, you know, targeted my sister and asked, oh, are you trying to seduce me now um, to her? And there was another individual after I went public, he came forward to me and said that he used to work with the same individual and that, um, that same person who raped me would make comments about tying women down and committing sex acts on them. And this was, you know, this was something he would just openly say in the workplace. They didn't interview my witnesses, but they interviewed people who admitted to having a favorable bias um, for the man who raped me. 
I gave them everything I had and made myself available to all of their meetings, but they falsely accused me of being uncooperative. The individual who raped me actually failed to avail himself for some time after I issued the complaint against him, and the college had told me that they were trying to get a hold of him and were having a hard time reaching him. Um, and then they also failed to question his credibility when he was withholding evidence and gave shifting accounts, which gradually described in greater detail sexual assault. He uh, also tried to destroy evidence and they didn't like, question his credibility. What kind of evidence? Like text, text. messages? Text messages, that? yeah. Um, and then he, in depositions under oath, he, everybody knew that he was the one who tried to delete the messages, but he lied under oath, just kind of misleading and said, oh, they got deleted and wouldn't basically incriminate himself by saying that he was the one who did it. And when my lawyer pressed him and said, well, you know, does anybody have access to your account information, your phone records to be able to go in and delete them? Um, and he said, no. <laughs> and he just kept saying, oh, they just got deleted. And then later on, there was evidence of continued, there was a continued evidence suppression um, during like a few weeks before trial. He tried to have the court enter altered documents into evidence. Um, and I'll go into that in, in further detail, but the judge shockingly allowed him to use it against me during trial. It technically wasn't entered into evidence, but jurors could still hear. They heard. So, um, real quick, what they, you say yeah. there's jurors. What I thought, but he wasn't prosecuted. So this was a civil federal suit. Okay. So you also brought us, it was a, a title nine suit against your university and against the perpetrator, or was it just a civil tort? It was both against the university and the perpetrator. Yes. Okay. I'm sorry. I kind of jumped around there. I but. was like, okay, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, gosh. Okay. Go on. I'm so sorry for interrupting you. No, no, that's, that's okay. Uh, they, the college, um, after I, you know, sued them and there were depositions, the college defendants admitted under oath that they didn't review his accounts and how they shifted from each of the the college administrative offices that were handling the complaint, which was the Title IX office. And then there was also public safety. And then I also reported to the police when the college told me that I could report, I could file a police report. That's when I issued the complaint. Um, he also provided them shifting accounts as well in the police report. So you reported police, but they ultimately elected not to charge him with a crime? Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't really kept in the loop on that. Um, there were issues with the police as well. Mm -hmm. The detective that I was in contact with actually didn't seem like she was interested in, you know, her responsibility when it comes to due diligence and actually taking my complaint seriously. The, one of the first things she said was, oh, you know, um, this doesn't even constitute sexual harassment, let alone sexual assault. Oh my God. Okay. And then my brother was pretty furious. He was upset. He was, you know, there at the police station and she told him, oh, you know, it's not that serious. And there were also issues with her later on that I can just discuss once we get to like in greater detail at the point where I, I enter the courts. But one of the major issues that comes up with the police's handling of my case is my clothes that I wore on the night that he raped me were last in the detective's custody. They've since been unaccounted for. 
nobody knows where my clothes are. Oh my gosh. Okay. So let's back up a little bit. What was, let's talk about what was the outcome of both the Title IX, and I'm going to put this in quotes, investigation, and then also the civil suit. What happened with both of those? So the the college closed my case and they found favorably for the man who raped me. And before I just had the sinking feeling that Mount Sack was not, you know, they weren't going to do right by me. And so in writing, I just repeatedly demanded, when are you going to interview my witnesses? Do not close the investigation into my complaint before you interview my witnesses. Um, and I even met with the college president <clears throat> demanding that this, you know, happen. And unfortunately, they didn't. Do- the college president said that he would, he indicated that he would make sure that it would happen, but it never did. And my meeting with him too was pretty frustrating. Like I was in tears and upset. Um, and he confirmed that he, you know, received my message about my, you know, investigation that was going on. But when I told him that the Mouth administration should make student safety a priority by installing, you know, actual functioning security cameras across the campus, he kind of scoffed at the idea and said it was too expensive. Oh my gosh. And that no college has security cameras on their campuses, um, which, you know, I interrupted him and said, no, that's that's completely false. That's absolutely not true. There's a university just down the road from Mount San Antonio College. They have security cameras. Yeah, it's definitely everywhere. not true. It's yeah, it's, it's not. completely not true. So, yeah, so the college, yeah, the college issued a decision in favor of the person who raped me and made all sorts of, you know, lies in their administrative findings letter. Awful. I'm so sorry. One of them alleging that I was uncooperative, even though I gave them everything I had, whereas the man who raped me was hiding evidence and would not give anything to them. Did they provide you with an advocate, a victim's advocate or anything like that when you were going through that process? I did not have a victim's advocate, no. At that point, did you have an attorney? I did not have an attorney at that time. I would, I wish that I could sit here and say that what you're telling me is an anomaly and I never hear it, but unfortunately I do hear it a lot. Yeah. And, you know, it's been a little bit of time since what happened to you. And so I'm hoping that this school has gotten better, but I will tell you that I still hear things like this so often Mm -hmm. about universities, not having any understanding of what to do and just really literally just dropping the ball from the word go, which clearly they did here in a multitude of ways, just from the way they spoke to you, the fact that you weren't provided with a victim advocate from the get-go, you weren't, did they give you any, did they provide any type of mental health counseling or treatment for you at all? They offered that to me, but at the time I didn't see a point in that. All I was interested at that time was him being held responsible for his actions. Of course. Well, That's awful. Um, What about the civil case? How did that end up? So after the federal aspect of it, after uh, against the college, the federal judge, Michael W. Fitzgerald, actually ruled in our favor twice. But then later on, the um, judge ended up throwing out my case on summary judgment. Oh, And that was because the college tried to argue that there were no major factual differences between my account and theirs, Um, which is, you know, mind boggling because their account suggests that all he did was hug me 
And mine is that, no, he raped me. Um, and none of it, even even by his own accounts of him claiming that all he did was hug me, doesn't make sense because he and I had hugged hello, goodbye, cordially before. And for him to claim that all he did on 9 December 12, 2013 was give me a different kind of a hug, you know, one that would lead me to issue a complaint of sexual assault against him is just shocking that they would even find that to be a remotely credible statement from him. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But yes, yeah, so there were <laughs> definitely differences between our accounts. Yeah, so the case got tossed against the college. Mm-hmm. And um, the judge decided that my case against the man who raped me would proceed under a different judge. Gotcha. Okay. And and it went to trial? Yes, it went to trial in 2018 with presiding judge Virginia Phillips, who I believe conducted herself prejudicially and was hostile towards me and my counsel. She threatened me and my counsel with jail if we use the word rape to describe the rape he committed against me. And the reason behind that was because she felt it was too prejudicial um, to use rape. However, she allowed the individual who raped me to use prejudicial, whatever prejudicial language to define what he did to my body without my consent. So for instance, she would allow him to say that, oh, you know, all he did was hug me. She threatened us with a mistrial if the words Me Too were used in court, and that's in relation, just tying my case into the Me Too movement. She refused to allow my counsel to question jurors directly during jury selection to eliminate the potential for bias. So I, you know, didn't have a jury of my peers. You know, there were no, you know, young Muslim women who wear hijab, mm-hmm. um, nobody who truly understands what's the significance of hijab, why it's worn by some women. And then there were also, uh, there appeared to be no assault survivors, at least none who admitted that they were. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, prior to the jurors who were chosen, when we were doing, um, I think it's, yeah, it was still during Voidir. The judge had actually asked, you know, about, I think she had asked who, if anybody knew anyone who's sexually assaulted or were sexually assaulted themselves, and if they felt comfortable being a part of this case, um, Mm -hmm. about a third of the room raised their hands and Mm -hmm. those people walked out because they didn't feel that they could be, you know, fair or objective regarding my case. So I'm guessing that that did not have a favorable outcome either. Yeah, no, it didn't. It didn't. It was just, it was awful. She would, uh, she also refused to allow me to refer to my medical records, which documented the extensive injuries I sustained because of the rape he committed against me. And then, as I mentioned before, she did allow him to use prejudicial documents he altered Mm -hmm. during trial. So it was this transcript of text messages that he would not just flat out fail to disclose during discovery when he was demanded that he do so. He was supposed to hand everything that was relevant over. He didn't do that. And then when he did, or claims that he did, half of the text messages were missing. And conveniently for him, it was his his responses that he deleted. So it was just all that was left is what I allegedly sent to him. And so we didn't have a whole complete account, um, including previous text messages, which would have had me confront him about his sexual harassment of me and my hijab when I confronted him text messages and asked him to stop. Those were admitted. Insane. So you've been through quite an ordeal from for a very long time over the course of 
you know, many years from the way it sounds. And I know that part of what you were hoping to talk about today is the the prejudices that we have to overcome and how impossible that feels. And I want you to like talk about that a little bit, if you can, about how you think these prejudices. And I think it probably started with your perpetrator, but it didn't end there. How that has continued to plague your experience and what's going on, especially with the people who are supposed to be there to help you. So how, how we talk a little bit about how that, how that has affected you in your journey and and any ideas you have about how we do overcome those things like sexism, racism, xenophobia? Sure. So how I was affected, you know, as a hijab wearing Muslim woman, I, you know, felt I faced Islamophobia in addition to sexism and some racism. There was simply a failure to uphold my right as a Muslim woman to wear my hijab without being subjected to violence and discrimination because of it. Um, There was also an overall failure to acknowledge that the man who raped me infringed on my right to to wear it. And there was that refusal by the college to acknowledge that I had a a right to wear it without facing that. Um, There's also a failure to acknowledge that by the you know, the cops as well, the detective who, you know, said that it didn't even constitute sexual harassment, let alone rape as well as the courts, um, jurors ultimately decided that it, even though there were, you know, messages of him and the judge herself had stated that there is evidence of religious discrimination on his behalf, the jurors didn't really care. It, they decided it didn't matter and that they didn't, you know, acknowledge religious discrimination in the end. I mean, how we can overcome these barriers I think it's a little, you know, more difficult to try and overcome the things that are kind of deeply ingrained, like um, sexism and and, mm-hmm. and racism. But I do think there are pieces of legislation that can strengthen protections for uh, rape survivors, especially for women. You know, I'm, for example, I think we should legislators should work on closing the consent loophole. There was legislation Mm -hmm. that was passed closing the consent loophole involving individuals who are operating under the color of the law. So for example, individuals who are raped in the custody of police, Mm -hmm. police officers can't go off and say, oh, they consented. Right. So that's what that legislation covers. Real quick, since you're talking about legislative, what state was it that all this occurred in where your assault occurred in and the subsequent litigation? California. California. Okay. Because, you know, the laws differ by each state and, you know, the the consent controversy has been ongoing for a long time and it is definitely a state-by-state analysis. Indiana, which is where I am, we actually did get a change to our rape statute passed uh, last year. It doesn't go as far as it should, but it did make it better. So Mm. I couldn't agree with you more that legislation is a big part of it. Yes. And then there's also ratifying CEDAW, which is the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Violence and Discrimination Against Women. That's an international human rights treaty that recognizes the universal rights of women and government's obligations to enforce and protect them. The United States has refused to ratify it thus far. And so I think, you know, if our government on an international level doesn't care to recognize or commit to protecting our rights socially, legally, and institutionally, of course, our institutions aren't going to fall, um, follow mm-hmm. through with that either. Okay. Anything else you can think of along those lines? Sure. I think um, tackling systemic prejudices like sexism, uh, racism, Islamophobia, you know, it can be difficult to uproot centuries and green biases like sexism. But I think with, you know, education, social movements that emphasize, you know, anti-sexual harassment 
education prevention training and sexual assault training that can really help foster mm -hmm. and cultivate younger generations into becoming responsible, conscientious minded people. And I think that, you know, that can really lead a, a paradigm shift that way. I agree. And, you know, even just by doing what you're doing today, I think goes so far as I know this isn't easy for you, but I think that this, this is the way we change things. And it's the whole, it's the spirit of this podcast. And it's the reason that Jamie and I began it in the first place was to try to give, you know, survivors like yourself the opportunity to share with everyone what happened to them and the lessons, the unfortunate and unnecessary, but realistic lessons that were learned along the way and kind of turning around and trying to help other people after you've had to learn those life lessons yourself. And I, and I mean that both in just sharing the things, but it sounds like in the work you do as well is very important because the first step to me is talking about it. We as a society have not talked about it for a very long time. And I think that's how it continues to exist the in the the first best way to combat it is truly to just have the conversations exactly i agree um so is there anything else that you would like to say that you think could be helpful for either survivors professionals who work within the field the greater field of sexual assault or loved ones of survivors so i think um it's important for survivors to remember that nobody knows their experiences better than they do um, and I say that because when I went public, there were people who were trying to discredit me. I mean, it's something a lot of people face when they come forward. It's just to remember that, you know, you are in control of your narrative. Nobody else knows of your experience better than you do. It's definitely something that nobody could ever take away from you. And then also just remember the importance of self-care mm -hmm. um, and, you know, reach out to organizations that are centered around offering self-care, counseling assistance as well, and to just continue to stay strong and, and persevere. That's really great advice. <laughs> um, really, really great advice. And definitely want to emphasize the importance of self-care. I think that sometimes it's you get wrapped up in it and you're just trying to do the right thing and trying to move forward and help others. And you have to remember at the end of the day that if you don't take care of yourself, you can't help anyone else. And Arifa, we end the show every time with three questions that we ask people. First question is, what does courage mean to you? Yeah, that is an interesting question. I think, um, I think courage entails perseverance. And just the desire to push forward and help others and also just facing, you know, facing whatever challenges that lie ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Question two, what is the best piece of advice you have ever received? Best piece of advice that I've ever received was actually from a survivor and advocate. Her name is Brianna Michelle, and she actually has her own organization that she founded, which is Voices Beyond Assault. And it's actually centered around healing for survivors. And her emphasis on self-care and focusing on healing past our trauma, mm. I think is incredibly important. Um, I know for myself, because I've just been kind of Try not to drown in 10 years, almost like 10 years worth of <laughs> <laughs> institutionalized trauma. 
mm-hmm. and to just hear it come from another survivor say that it's okay to just pause and really just look after yourself and have fun. That's what that organization is kind of centered around in part is giving survivors resources with therapists, counselors, and it's very diverse as well. And and just just really just looking after yourself and having fun, experiencing joy again. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to put it, experiencing joy again. That's awesome. Okay, final question. What is one question that you wish more people would ask you? That's a good question. I, I usually surround myself. I'm always surrounded by people who are quite conscientious as it is. But I would say there's one thing I wanted people to ask. It would probably be assessing the psychological impact of rape, as I feel sometimes the mental health aspect isn't taken as seriously as like physical injuries that are sustained from rape and sexual assault and just kind of checking in on mental health and stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, Arif, is there anything else that you want to say before we sign off today? No, I do just want to thank you again for having me. It's you know always a pleasure being here and always great to have an opportunity to talk about this with others. Of course. And we are so grateful for you for coming on today. I know it's not easy. It's you've been through it truly like you have been through it. And so I know it's not easy to come on and talk about these things. So thank you so much for doing so. Because again, as I said before, I truly believe that the first thing, best thing, the place to start is for us to have these conversations, these difficult conversations and to spread awareness about what is actually happening. And that isn't just with sexual assault, but also with the aftermath and the ways that people are treated. It's just so important for people to hear. So thank you very much for coming on and sharing that with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. And as always, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Please submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. We will see you next time.